Tonight, on the Rotten or Righteous podcast, we say the phrase, Icky, 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 pekang, zoop, boing, gurderm, zoo, uli, Welcome to Rotten or Righteous, the only podcast that constantly turns on the grail-shaped beacon. With me, as always, he knows the difference between an African and a European swallow. He's Luke Taylor. Thanks for inviting me back. (laughs) Personally, I blow my nose at this empty-headed food trough wiper. His name is Scott, or his name, his name is Scott Judge! (laughs) You blow your nose at this empty-headed tropper? Oh, um, food trough wiper. Food trough. Mm-hmm. Okay. And me, well, shrubberies are my trade. I am a shrubber. My name is Zach the Shrubber. I arrange, design, and sell shrubberies. <laughs> if you haven't guessed by now, we are have watched this week the supremely quotable and incredibly popular film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Now, Scott's never seen this movie before, and I understand that. I mean, you were probably in your 20s at the time when it came out in 1973. Uh, you know, you're <laughs> getting ready three. to go to school. I mean, <laughs> go to college for the first time, maybe going out in the real world. I understand the 70s were a crazy time for you. But, uh... They were, actually. No, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of this movie, and really of anything Monty Python put out. But this is the most tame thing Monty Python has put out that we could actually watch and review. And don't blame me for this, you can actually blame... Redacted. ...who recommended this, that we do this next. So... Shame. Shame, shame. The film begins like many movies from the 70s, with the credits at the beginning of the film. White text on black background appear, and we read the names of those who worked on the film as intense music plays. But underneath, you begin to see Swedish subtitles. Well, at least they seem like Swedish subtitles, but they're actually just English words misspelled and written with the Swedish alphabet. And basically what these subtitles are telling us as these credits roll on is uh, uh, they're encouraging us to go and visit Sweden to see their lovely lakes and their majestic moose. But then the subtitles take a left turn right away that I'm not prepared for at any time I watch this film because uh, it tells us a harrowing story of a time that a moose once bit the subtitle author's sister. Subtitles read, No, really, she was carving her initials on the moose. (laughs) With this... No, no, really, she was carving her initials on the moose with the sharpened end of an interspace toothbrush given to her by Svinge, her brother-in-law, an Oslo dentist and star of many Norwegian movies. The hot hands of an Oslo dentist, fillings of passion, the huge molars of horse Nordfink. How do you not find that funny? The huge molars I... of, Norse... <laughs> of horse Nordfink. <laughs> I'll be honest, as I was watching this movie, I think I laughed out loud once. Yeah. Maybe it was just it. the mood that I was in, and I was just like, no, this isn't funny. This is something only Can Zach we find ask funny. which time Luke laughed out loud, or do we need to wait for it? We'll, we'll wait. No, you can I'll, tell I'll, us. Tell you, I'll tell you when it arrives. 
Now, it's at this point, after hearing about the huge molars of horse Nordfink, that the credits come to a grinding halt, and we're informed that whoever was responsible for the subtitles had been fired. Ominous music begins to play, and the credits continued, and then the subtitles reappear at the bottom, telling us, mind you, moose bites can be pretty nasty. Then the credits come to a screeching halt a second time, where we're informed that whoever was responsible for firing the subtitle authors had themselves been fired. And then a beautiful overture plays. And yes, the subtitles at this point is stopped, but now within the, t- uh, within the credits themselves, the Swedish lettering appears. And we see credits uh, uh, and titles that people had on this film like Moose Wrangler and Moose Costumes and Special Moose Effects. Moose Choreographer, Moose Trained to Mix Concrete and Sign Complicated Insurance Forms, Large Moose on the left-hand side of the screen in the third scene from the end, giving a thorough grounding uh, in Latin, French, and O-level geography. And then, the credits come to an end a third time. This time, we're told by on-screen text that the directors uh, uh, just got rid of everybody involved in the credits, and then at great expense they decided to just do the credits over again in a a drastically different style uh, at the last minute. And then this horrible stroke-inducing green and red strobe light background happens as the rest of the credits play out as mariachi music plays in the background. All unnecessary. It was, but when was the last time you've been that... Limitedly funny. When was the last time you've been that entertained just reading credits? I may have skipped some of it because I found it so unfunny. Being bitten by a moose, though, not funny. Unless you live in Canada, where the mooses are. Or um, uh, a Canadian moose has nothing on a Swedish moose. The Swedish mooses are the most majestic creatures you'd ever want to see. And that's why they're so majestic, because they're so rare. They don't exist. Everybody knows about the Canadian moose. Oh, look, oh, look, another Canadian moose. What a shock. You're... (laughs) (laughs) No one knows about the Swedish moose. The movie begins letting us know that we're in England in 932 AD. Fog drifts across the screen as the noble and gallant knight, or as a noble and gallant knight and his squire named Patsy ride over the crest of a hill. This knight is none other than King Arthur. And before you think that he is riding on the back of a beautiful steed, I don't want you to be misinformed because he is galloping, like uh, literally on his own legs, like kids do in gym class sometimes when they don't know how to skip. He's just pretending to ride a horse while Patsy follows behind him, banging two coconuts together to make horse sounds. They still are majestic, and no one can take that away from them. Where'd they get those coconuts? That's the question. Sweden. That's the question because they address that as they approach a nearby castle. Arthur introduces himself as King Arthur, son of Uther Pendragon from the castle of Camelot, king of the Britons, defeater of the Saxons, sovereign of all England. Of course, he's saying this to a guard that's standing atop a parapet. And he tells the guard, King Arthur does, that he wants find knights 
to sit at his round table and wants to speak with the fortress's lord and master. But before the guard is willing to go and get said lord and master, he has one pressing question. Where did Arthur get the coconuts? You see, the coconut is tropical and England is temperate. It's not like England is just filled with coconut trees. Maybe the moose brought him. Perhaps, but the wise king theorizes that perhaps the coconuts migrated, saying the swallow may fly south with the wind, or the house martin or the plumber may seek warmer climates in the winter, yet these are not strangers to our land. And when this theory of migrating produce is brushed aside, the adroit king suggests that perhaps the coconut was carried from its tropical home to the temperate English countryside, maybe by a swallow, gripping it by the husk. (laughs) Not to be outsmarted by the king, the guard explains that logically that theory holds no water. You see, it's impossible for a five-ounce bird to carry a one-ounce coconut. And it's at this point the second guard adds his two cents in and says, yes, it is true, the European swallow could not carry a coconut, but perhaps the African swallow could. Unfortunately, they remember that the African swallow can't migrate. So that's impossible for an African swallow to bring a coconut to England. But maybe, just maybe, two swallows work together, tying the coconut to a bit of vine, each one carrying the coconut sharing the load, if you will, under their dorsal feathers. But unfortunately... Dorsal feathers? Mm-hmm. That's, what the, that's a quote from the little movie. But unfortunately, we never come to a satisfying answer to the coconut conundrum as King Arthur grows impatient and simply gallops away. So you mean all that dialogue was for nothing? No, it was for everything. And wasn't that funny that whole time? I'm sorry, it was hilarious. How did the coconut get there, Luke? You have a coconut in a land where coconuts don't exist? That's not supposed to be there. It's 932 AD. They live in a time, they live in a year that you can read on a clock. It's weird. How do you know coconut trees didn't grow in England in 932 when Pangea was, you know, not yet entirely split? And still in a pretty tropical place. Hold on just one quick second there, Lukey Poo. Are you suggesting that the geography of the Bible, which took place 900 years before this, cannot be counted on by looking at a map because Pangea was not done splitting? Well, yeah. (laughs) Touche. How do we know the Bible maps are accurate? Because they're in the back of all of them. Even in the back of those old hardback pew Bibles, you'll find a map or two. I guess that is pretty legit. The only Bible Bible I've never seen a map in is one of them Gideon Bibles that you find in hotel rooms. What, Gideon's too good for maps? Come on, Gideon, (laughs) I want a map. They they probably know the truth. The truth about the coconuts and the tropical climate of the Mediterranean during the time of Jesus. Right, exactly. Next, the movie delivers us a biting commentary on the fragility of life and what little value human life truly has in the lower classes. You see, a man is pulling a cart piled with bodies of plague victims, charged with the macabre task of disposing the poor souls who have recently succumbed to the pestilence that ravaged the land. His wistful... 
His wistful voice carries the somber <laughs> invitation to bring out your dead. Among the wailing... Bring out the... your dead! Thank you. Among the wailing... <laughs> among the wailing of the expiring peasantry and the scrounging in the mud, a young man brings a not-quite-dead elderly gentleman to the cart. Of course, the cart driver cannot take a living elderly gentleman onto the cart. That's for dead people, and it would be against regulations. Add to that, add to that the, the aged man's protest that he's getting better, and that he thinks he'll go for a walk. Is this the part you laughed at, Luke? No. You're laughing now, so there's two parts. Bring Un out your dead! Unfortunately, desperation can make monsters out of the most honorable men, and when the young man carrying the elderly man bribes the cart driver for a favor, the driver bludgeons the elderly man and adds him to the cart. Just one more victim of the antiquated caste system that killed so many lower-class individuals during this truly horrific time period. How much time did you spend writing this script? Too much. Let this crucial... I can tell. Let this crucial set piece be a much-needed lesson to the people today to never return to that antiquated time. And just to drive this especially poignant point home is the fact that King Arthur, the leader and biggest supporter of this suppressive socioeconomic quagmire, gallops through the slums with hardly a passing glance at his suffering subjects. So you're saying he's... Didactic. And we're all the peasantry wearing our masks in just, our peasant towns. Just just rolling on the ground in our filth. Selling our grandparents for 5p, 5 pence. <laughs> I thought it was 9 pence. Maybe it How was. much is 9 pence? That's 9 cents. 9 Not... pence is one more than 8 pence. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's about three quarters of a straw penny. <laughs> Bring out your dead! And then the movie also adds to the sharp critique of England's medieval caste system. In the next scene, as we see Arthur galloping through a field where peasants are slaving away, gathering the only thing that is available for them to farm. Literal filth. <laughs> Picking up mud. Amid immediately, King Arthur belittles a commoner as he pulls a wag or as he pulls by a wagon and calls out "old woman." And when the peasant explains that he is neither a woman nor old, he's just thirty-seven. <laughs> he asks Arthur not to treat him like an inferior and simply refer to him by his Christian name, Dennis. <laughs> Where's Dennis in the Bible? You guys are preachers, can you tell me? I don't know, but he was a menace. I wonder if, you know, back in the day they actually referred... You know, every every medieval movie ever, they refer to people as, like, old hag and old woman. I wonder if they actually did that. I hope so. You ever called anyone an old hag, Luke? Um, no, I don't think I have. Okay, actually, Dennis is derived from the Greek god of wine, Dionysius. So, yeah, it's technically... Uh, I don't in, know if you knew, in but the, Bible. the Greek gods aren't in the Bible. That's the wrong god. There's a commandment against... No, them. I just I just looked this up. 
Uh, the equivalent, He's in the Bible? No, hold on a second. Yeah, technically. All right. It's the Greek god of wine, Dionysius, which has the Roman equivalent, Bacchus, which, of course, we know is a judge of Athens that was converted to Christianity by Paul. So, technically, Bacchus is Dionysius. <laughs> therefore, Dennis is in the Bible. Interesting. <laughs> so, yes, Arthur... Arthur is corrected by Dennis, the biblically named <laughs> Dennis. And does does the king apologize for his mistake? Of course not. King Arthur just instead explains that as king, he does see Dennis as an inferior and will call him whatever he wants. To this, the wise Dennis retorts, Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how'd you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress with the... But then he is interrupted by his just powerful speech. By the very characterization. He is interrupted by the very characterization of the ignorant laborer who refuses to acknowledge that they have been made a slave to a self-perpetuating autocracy. This poor, ignorant scab tries to silence Dennis by distracting him with work. Yes, the hammer and sickle shine bright in this film, brothers. <laughs> what was happening in the 70s? I am so That's... glad that I'm so glad that my idea to write this is if it was a serious, hard-hitting satire of <laughs> this pain <laughs> off. See how many people were recovering from the 60s? Some people were going ahead and having a second 60s. <laughs> a lot of streaking, a lot of smoking dope, a lot of poverty. Yeah. Any communism? No. I mean, it no? was at uh. the start of the Cold War. Yeah. I mean, the 70s, that was like the end of World War II. So, you know, Hitler. I mean, World War II <laughs> ended in the late 40s. 1945 oh. <laughs> only yeah, he was 35 years prior Soviet Soviet Union Putin was Putin was being born Good Stalin was Stalin. Putin's dad right yeah <laughs> right <laughs> there's some guy named Hugo Chavez that I'm not a hundred percent sure who he was I think he might have been a Muppet um and then Joseph Smith found those tablets over there in China right. and brought them to right. America where the Indians right. lived. Of course. Where they've grown a white alligator. And Daniel Boone, of course, gave Joseph Smith that, that, that famous piggyback ride across the Rockies. Because <laughs> he couldn't make it himself because he was such a weakling. And then the Manhattan Project went up in flames there and Tiananmen Square was made from the explosions. Oh. It all comes together. Right. Why don't we just turn this into a history podcast? History is just amazing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I love the accuracy of it myself. <laughs> exactly when do you think the Vietnam War was, Luke? Uh, about um, That was in the 1800s, I think, sometime. <laughs> yeah, it was right, right after the Civil War, but right before the French and Indian War. The uh, Vietnamese were colonized by the British, and they tried to split their country into 13 colonies. Then they had to go to war, and um, 
King Arthur wasn't really happy about it, but they ended up winning in the end. And when Paul Revere rode across China to tell them that the British were coming. No, he, he warned them about the Huns. Get it right. The Huns were coming. Oh, the yeah, Huns yeah. are coming. The Huns are coming. The Huns are coming. I Husbands remember watching everywhere that. We're scared to death. Do you remember when uh, Colonel Sanders led the Allies into Ikea? His brother was uh, Theodore Roosevelt, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yeah. Theodore Roosevelt, yeah. who was actually uh, married a bear. If I remember, that's where we get the teddy bear from. Theodore Roosevelt married a bear. The first lady was a bear. Teddy, chicken Sanders Roosevelt. Right, right, right. And then that millionaire borrowed Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shoot. <laughs> it all comes together. <laughs> Every, everything goes back to borrowed Christmas. For, for those of you who didn't know, every single episode of The Rod or Righteous has this continual thread. You could see borrowed Christmas like a crimson thread throughout each episode of Rod Righteous. <laughs> I'm a sorry existence. That poor guy's schoolhouse. <laughs> okay, so anyways, <laughs> Dennis is interrupted by uh, this unintentional scab. And it's at this point that the king is clearly disgusted that he has to spend so much time speaking to his perceived lessers. He asks who lives in the castle nearby. Dennis then tries to patiently explain that no one lives there because there is no lord over their land. He says that he and his fellow laborers belong to an anarcho-syndicalist commune, that they take in, it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week, but all decisions of that officer have to be ratified in a special bi-weekly meeting by a simple majority in the case of purely internal affairs, but by a two-thirds majority in the case of more major. And the liberty in this kingdom just infuriates King Arthur to the point of anger, and he orders Dennis to shut up. And when challenged on his authority, and when Dennis says, who, who gives you the authority to tell me to be quiet? How can you silence me? The king says that he is authorized due to his kingship. And when asked how he became king, Arthur explained that he was granted his crown when the Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence. That I, Arthur, was to carry Excalibur, and that is why I am king. And then Dennis, this archaic freedom fighter that he is, challenges Arthur's claim, saying, Listen, strange women lying in ponds and distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme executive power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just, some watery, or just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. I mean, if I went around saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bent had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away. <laughs> of course, the tyrant, King Arthur, cannot allow such words to go unpunished. So he begins to physically assault Dennis and lobbing a hateful slur that I am aghast that I have to repeat here on this podcast, but for the sake of the narrative, I shall. Arthur calls him a bloody peasant. 
Mm. And Dennis, who is ready to become a martyr for the cause of freedom, shouts to bring attention to Arthur's attacks. And he says aloud, come and see the violent in- or the violence inherited in the system. Help, help, I'm being repressed. And Arthur only relents his attack when he notices that he is being watched and not wanting Dennis to become a hero of this freedom movement unhands him and gallops away. Dennis. Never forget. <laughs> Arthur's callous brutality continues to be on display as he comes across a gray or, or comes across the brave black knight protecting a bridge in a forest. After seeing the black knight dispatch the evil trespassing green knight, the king is impressed and asks the black knight to join him. When the Black Knight refuses, it makes the king sad. But Arthur resolves to move on and continue his search. However, the Black Knight, who is just doing his job, refuses to allow Arthur to cross his bridge. I mean, the Black Knight doesn't know Arthur from Adam. How is he to know that Arthur truly is the king? And is not just saying that he is a king as a ploy to trespass and wreak havoc in the land beyond the bridge. And does Arthur provide any validation to the Black Knight? Does he find a, another way to move forward to not trouble this noble and brave warrior? Of course not. Arthur instead uses his Romano-British privilege of having the finest education and swordsmanship money could buy to humiliate and defeat the innocent Black Knight. While the Black Knight holds his own against the king for a while, he is soon overpowered by the bully tyrant king. And Arthur unmercilessly destroys the knight's talent and livelihood by hacking off the Black Knight's arm. But the bravery Just a of the flesh wound. But the bravery of the Black Knight cannot be overstated. He sees his dismemberment as nothing but a scratch and refuses to leave his post guarding that bridge. So Arthur is presented with an opportunity to show mercy and kindness, but instead the bestial king removes his other arm. And again, the Black Knight, unwavering in his courage, declares his injuries are nothing more than a flesh wound and attempts to kick the king. Arthur is not satisfied with leaving this knight with at least a shred of dignity, and he removes the Black Knight's legs one by one. And the king leaves the mortally wounded Black Knight to die alone in the wood. The last words out of the ever-optimistic Black Knight are, All right, we'll call it a draw. <laughs> Dennis and the Black Knight Does he die? Does he people, die? Well, let's people see how seemed, many people how seem many? to recover quite well. They're they always, get, they're always yeah. saying, oh, they, I'm feeling better. They get so I'm better. thinking he just grew his arms and legs back. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure that he, he, how many arteries are severed when you lose two arms and two legs? Yeah, but the, At least uh, three. Um, I think he made it. 
Yeah, me too. Probably grew back. Have you ever uh, heard of that he... one guy who grew his, his arm back? I think he uh, uh, rolled over to a nearby fire, cauterized his stumps, and then went on living his life as a sandbag in the local theater. Cauterized <laughs> his stumps. <laughs> That's the line of the night right there. Next, we come to a brilliant expose on how a fanatical religion, when not checked with logic and science, can lead to horrible atrocities. 932, of course, was a time before science and religion were able to work together, and the results are heartbreaking. In a village that is clearly influenced by a form of flagellant monks who have traded their whips for boards with which they beat their foreheads with. The ignorant masses believe they have found a witch. The excited peasants bring the witch to the noble and wise Sir Bedivere to ask for permission to burn the condemned woman. Bedivere, a man of limited science, asks them how they know she is a witch, to which the crowd gives multiple evidences. Number one, she's dressed like one. Granted, the crowd dressed her up like a witch, but uh, to the crowd's credit, she does have a wart. Small detail. Two, two, she turned one of the peasants into a newt. But thankfully, he got better. If he got better, the other guy could get better. Right. Before sentencing the woman to death, Bedivere asks the villagers a logic question. He asks, what do you burn apart from witches? To which the peasants shout out, more witches. Of course, someone does eventually land on the right one. A right answer, wood. And if I may put Bedivere's logic in proper modus ponens form, if both witches and wood burn, then witches must be made out of wood. Witches and wood do burn. Therefore, witches must be made out of wood. I mean, Bedivere's logic is infallible. So logically, they need to figure out if the woman is made out of wood? Well, to answer this question, the peasants suggest that they try to build a bridge out of her. Obviously. But then Bedivere points out that this is 932, okay? We're building bridges out of stone as well as wood. Oh, yeah. But Pet- Bedivere patiently leads the peasants in the right direction, asking them if, if wood sinks in water. No, of course it doesn't. It floats! The peasantry exclaims. The wise knight asks... What also floats in water? The peasants shout out a variety of answers like bread, apples, very small rocks, cider, (laughs) (laughs) cider, gravy, cherries, mud, churches, and lead. But none of them are what Bedivere's looking for. And that is when Arthur, who has been watching the trial play out, shouts out the correct answer. A duck! So logically, if the woman weighs the same as a duck, then she must be a witch. Dennis, the Black Knight. Logic. Never forget. Luckily, the village just so happens to have a giant set of balance scales. On one side, they place a duck. On the other, they place the woman. When the supports are removed, sure enough, the woman and duck weigh the same. 
So it turns out that the villagers did in fact, although probably by accident, they did in fact find a witch to burn. <laughs> although by accident. <laughs> or, or of course, knowledge of Arthur's previous crimes against humanity have not reached Bedivere's ears, and Bedivere is simply impressed that Arthur is so wise in the ways of science. So with that, Bedivere becomes Arthur's first knight of the round table. A narrator tells us that while Sir Bedivere was the first to join King Arthur's knights, other illustrious names were soon to follow. Sir Lancelot the Brave, Sir Galahad the Pure, Sir Robin the not-quite-so-brave as Sir Lancelot, who had nearly fought the dragon of Angor, who had nearly stood up to the vicious chicken of Bristol, and who had personally wet himself at the Battle of Braden Hill, and the aptly named Sir not appearing in this film. Together, they formed a band whose names and deeds were to be retold throughout the centuries, the Knights of the Round Table. There is no round table in this whole movie. Of course not. <laughs> For when Arthur and his knights arrive at Camelot, we're treated to a very informative song about the goings-on at the royal city, which I shall not sing, but recite for you now. We're knights of the round table. We dance whene'er we're able. We do routines and chorus scenes with footwork impeccable. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and spam a lot. We're knights of the round table. Our shows are formidable, but many times we're given rhymes that are quite unsing-able. We're opera-mad in Camelot. We sing from the diaphragm a lot. In war, we're tough and able. Quite indefatigable. Between our quests, we sequin vests and impersonate Clark Gable. It's a busy life in Camelot. I have to push the Pramalot. And when the song concludes, our knights decide not to go to Camelot simply because it is a silly place. And that, dear Luke, Luke is why there is not a round table in this movie. The round table resides in a silly place, which they shan't visit. Sure. <laughs> As the knights and their coconut-clapping squires ride along a ridge... A divine light breaks down through the heavens, and God himself quests Arthur with a royal task to find the Holy Grail. With their holy quest, the knights and Arthur set out to do as God commanded, and soon they come to the castle of Guide Lombard, a Frenchman. What are these French doing in England? Mind your own business. Arthur asks one of the French guards if their master would provide them for food and shelter for the night, and if Lombard would do that, then he could join the knights on their quest for the Holy Grail. But the guard lies and says that Lombard already has a Holy Grail, and it's very nice. And when Arthur asks if he can have a look at the Divine Cup, the French guard refuses to let them on account that the knights were English. And then Arthur does what he does best, threatens to use force to break into the castle to see the grail. But the French guard does not buckle. Instead, he taunts the king, saying, You do not frighten us, English pig dogs. 
Go and boil your bottoms, sons of a silly person. I blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English caniggets. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trowel wipers. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelled of elderberries. Is this the part you laughed at, Luke? No, I didn't laugh at this. With that, taunting done, the guard advises Arthur and company to go away or face another taunting. However, when it becomes clear that the king isn't going to relent, the French guard turns to his comrades and says, Fetch de vage, which is French for fetch the cow. (laughs) The French then launch a huge cow at the knights, which they manage to nimbly dodge, well, all except... Squire Patsy, who was crushed under the full weight of the bovine. But don't worry, he gets better. (laughs) Then Arthur and his knights assault the castle's front door, where they are assaulted by a barrage of various livestock. And when the goats, lambs, pigs, ducks, and chickens become too much for the knights to handle, they retreat. But don't give up, because Bedivere has a plan. Out of the woods, the squires pull a huge wooden rabbit out of the woods surrounding the French castle. And much to the delight of King Arthur and the knights who are watching from a nearby ditch, the French take the big bunny into their stone fortress. And then Arthur asks Bedivere what the next step is. Bedivere responds, well, now Lancelot, Galahad, and I wait until nightfall and then leap out of the rabbit, taking the French by surprise. And not only by surprise, but totally unarmed. It's at this point that the wise knight realizes his critical error and suggests that they try the plan again, this time by building a large wooden badger. They don't have time to think about the badger plan because the French then launch the rabbit over the castle walls, forcing Arthur's band to run away. All the knights get away, but Sir Galahad's squire isn't so lucky. We hear his dying gasp as the heavy wooden rabbit beats the squire into the ground. <laughs> this is the part I love. <laughs> what, the rabbit falling on the guy? Yeah, and then the rabbit just, like, collapses and looks ridiculous because of the stupid wooden head. We then see a famous historian standing in a castle ruin. He is filming a history documentary for British school children in a modern or in modern day England, and he tells us that the defeat at the castle seems to have utterly disheartened King Arthur. The ferocity of the French taunting took him completely by surprise, and Arthur became convinced that a new strategy was required if the quest for the Holy Grail were to be brought to a successful conclusion. Arthur, having consulted or having consulted his closest knights, decided that they should separate and search for the grail individually. And this is what they did. And at this point, a mountain knight flies in from out of nowhere and slices the elderly historian's throat. And the scene ends with the historian's distraught wife shouting, Frank! And running to her husband's bleeding body. Dennis, the Black Knight. Logic, Frank. Never forget.
And she just looked with, what do I do? There's nothing I can do. What do I do? There's nothing I can do. Our narrator then tells us that we're about to see the tale of Sir Robin. We're told that each of their knights went their separate ways, and Sir Robin rode north through the dark forest of Ewan, accompanied by his favorite minstrels. And as Robin gallops down a forest trail, we are treated to a song about his bravery. Bravely bold Sir Robin rode forth from Camelot. He was not afraid to die, O brave Sir Robin. He was not at all afraid to be killed in nasty ways. Brave, 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 brave Sir Robin. He was not the least bit scared to be mashed into a pulp or have his eyes gouged out and his elbows broken, to have his kneecaps split and his body burned away and his limbed or in his limbs all hacked and mangled, brave Sir Robin. His head smashed in and his heart cut out and his liver removed and his bowels unplugged and his nostrils raped and his bottom burned off and his... That's where Sir Robin says enough. That's enough for now. Plenty enough. And then suddenly, Sir Robin comes face to face with the fearsome knight with three heads who, as the name suggests, is a knight with three heads. The evil three-headed knight have a disagreement over whether or not they're going to try to kill Robin. The one on the left wants to kill him, while the one on the right wants to be nice to him. The one in the middle takes the left head side, because the right head snores. So in the end, the three-headed knight decides to kill Sir Robin and then go have tea, but not biscuits. Not biscuits, Scott. Maybe some crackers, but no biscuits. Of course, during the argument, Sir Robin takes the opportunity to run away, giving the minstrels a new song to sing. And as Robin voices his disagreement with the lyrics, the minstrels began to sing, Brave Sir Robin ran away. Bravely ran away, away. When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. Yes, brave Sir Robin turned about and gallantly he chickened out. Bravely taking to his feet, he beat a very brave retreat. Bravest of the brave, Sir Robin. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we are told the tale of Sir Galahad, the chaste knight, who is fighting his way through a torrential downpour when he comes across the castle, and he can see on the tallest spire of this castle a vision of the grail illuminated brightly. Excited, thinking he found the holy grail, he enters the front door and finds himself in the horribly named Castle Anthrax. (laughs) The castle is inhabited by only young females, and they're led by Zoot. And Zoot is just pleased as punch to see Sir Galahad. Immediately, Zoot calls for two of her handmaidens named Midget and Crapper. (laughs) I didn't didn't catch that. Midget and Crapper. Immediately, Zoot calls for two of her handmaidens, Midget and Crapper, to lead Sir Galahad to a bed for he needs rest. But Galahad instead insists on seeing the Holy Grail. But Zoot assumes that the knight must be delirious from his journey and asks Anthrax's doctors, Piglet and Winston, 
to see to Galahad's wounds. On the way to his bed, Zoot is apologetic to the knight, saying, I'm afraid our life may seem, or must seem very dull and quiet compares to yours. We are but eight score young blondes and brunettes, all between 16 and 19 and a half, cut off in this castle with no one to protect us. Oh, it is a lonely life, bathing, dressing, undressing, knitting exciting Redacted. We're just not used to handsome knights. Of course, the gallant Galahad, aware of the temptation that Castle Anthrax imposes on his vowed chastity, insists on finding the grail and leaving the castle as quickly as possible. That is, until, well, he sees the rest of Anthrax's inhabitants. And then his resolve wavers a bit. We then learn that... We then learn from Zoot's identical twin sister, Dingo, that Zoot... (laughs) (laughs) That Zoot must have lit the castle's grail-shaped beacon. Illegally, mind you, and that the grail is not actually there. Furthermore, Zoot needs to be punished for her wicked trick. And at Castle Anthrax, there is but one punishment. A spanking. This excites everyone. And all 150 citizens of the castle line up and volunteer for a spanking from this brave, brave knight. (laughs) Now Galahad is very close to giving up on his vow of chastity when Lancelot thankfully rushes in at the last second and saves Galahad, much to Galahad's dismay from the temptation. Which I think is a wonderful time to point out that this movie teaches us a wonderful lesson on morality and and temptation. It's important as we go through this life to have strong (laughs) friends. So that when we find ourselves caught in temptation, they can pull us out of the fire. Now, it's not always easy to pull our friends out of the fire of temptation. And and certainly Galahad (laughs) didn't see Lancelot's act as a kindness at the time. As a matter of fact, as they're leaving the palace, Galahad pleads with Lancelot to allow him to return the castle and face the peril. Of course, Lancelot responds, no, it's too perilous. We have to find the Holy Grail. Come on. To which Galahad begs, oh, please let me have just a little bit of peril. And when Lancelot refuses again, (laughs) Galahad exclaims, I bet you're gay. (laughs) That is certainly one way to spin that. Then we are told the tale of King Arthur and Sir Bedivere. The two are found in an old man's shack where they have stopped to get directions to the Holy Grail. And the old man tells them that they need to find an enchanter who knows of a cave which no man has entered. He says there is much danger for beyond the cave lies the gorge of eternal peril which no man has ever crossed. Seek you the bridge of death. King Arthur pleads with the old man, asking him if the bridge of death leads to the grail, but the silly old man simply laughs and fades from existence. The two continued through or the two continue on through a foggy grove when they come across the most feared adversary, the knights who say knee. For the ignorant and uninformed, the knights who say knee are the secret keepers of the sacred words knee, pang, and knee whoop! And those who hear from them seldom live to tell the tale. 
Then the Knights of Need give King Arthur and Bedivere a task. For the Knights of Need demand a shrubbery. One that looks nice and is not too expensive. And if they fail to return with a shrubbery, they will not leave the woods with their lives. Their story is kind of halted at this point. We're given a a brief view of police officers investigating the scene of the famous historian's murder. And then we're told by the narrator that we are going to hear the tale of Sir Lancelot. In a castle, an old lord is telling his effeminate son, Herbert, that someday everything he rules will be his. Of course, Herbert doesn't want any of that. He just wants to sing. But after putting a stop to Herbert's intended musical number, the father explains what a blessing it is to be inheriting his castle. The castle that he built up from nothing. Because when he started there, all there was was a swamp. Other kings said that he was daft to build a castle on a swamp, but I built it all the same just to show him, and it sank into the swamp. So I built a second one, and that one sank into the swamp. So I built a third one. That burned down, fell over, then sank into the swamp. But the fourth one... (laughs) The fourth one stayed up, and that is what Herbert is going to get. The strongest castle in these lands. You see, it's Herbert's wedding day, and old Herb is going to marry Princess Lucky because, well, their marriage will extend Herbert's kingdom. But Herbert doesn't like the princess and would rather marry a girl who has a certain special something and then attempts to break into song a second time, to which the father just shuts that down real quick. And he tells Herbert that the princess is great, she's beautiful, she's rich, she's got huge tracts of land. And Herbert's going to marry her. End of story. Then the father locks Herbert in his room, and Herbert takes the opportunity to write a note of distress and attach it to an arrow, and then fire the arrow out of the room. Lancelot and his squire are galloping through a nearby wood when his squire is hit by an arrow and is... Almost certainly very seriously mortally wounded and will not get better no matter what. It turns out the arrow is the one Herbert just fired a moment ago. And the letter reads, whoever finds this note, I have been imprisoned by my father who wishes me to marry against my will. Please, please, please come and rescue me. I am in the tall tower of Swamp Castle. And Lancelot leaves his injured squire to go and attempt a daring rescue mission, hoping that this cry of distress was providentially sent to him as a sign to lead him to the grail. Wedding preparations are underway at the castle as we watch for a solid two minutes Lancelot running towards the castle. This is probably my favorite part of this entire movie. It makes me laugh every single time. Really? Because I was like, get this scene over with. They just kept replaying the same footage like six times. (laughs) <laughs> like it was funny like the first like three times they did it but after like six times i was like okay I get yeah but it. if they did it seven times that seventh time you'd be like all right i get it. it's funny again when lancelot reaches the front gate he kills one of the two guards immediately even though neither guard raised a single hand against him as a matter of fact he kills one of the guards and the other guard just simply turns to him and goes hey <laughs> And 
And then Lancelot slices his way through wedding caterers and band members and guests and other forms of entertainment to rescue the assumed damsel in distress. And when Lancelot discovers that his damsel in distress is not a damsel at all, but uh, distressed Herbert, his brave zeal immediately turns to disgust. And Herbert's outraged father comes in and demands answers to what Lancelot has done. All in all, Lancelot killed several guards, which cost $50 apiece. Eight wedding guests and stabbed the bride's father in the head, as well as kicked the bride in the chest. Lancelot per- apologizes profusely and explains that if he knew Herbert was, well, Herbert, not a lady, he would have never have crashed the wedding. But when the father hears that Lancelot is a knight of Camelot, and that land is known for its ability to raise pigs and its very nice castle, he immediately forgives the overzealous knight. And while the father and Lancelot are talking, Herbert has begun to climb out of his window on a makeshift rope, which his father just nonchalantly cuts, sending Herbert crashing to the ground below. And the father and Lancelot go to get a drink. Of course, as the two are descending the stairs to get that drink, the wedding guests are at the foot of the stairs and are very angry at the night, and they rush Lancelot, which sends Lancelot into yet another zealous rage, and he murders, again, several people, including the best man. But their father calms the night down, and Lancelot apologizes again, and then the father turns to the crowd and gives a a wonderful, wonderful speech. He says, please, please. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. Let's not bicker and argue about who killed who. We're here today to witness the union of two people in the joyful bond of holy wedlock. Unfortunately, one of them, my son Herbert, has just fallen to his death. But I don't want to think I've lost a son so much as gained a daughter gesturing to the portly and homely Princess Lucky. And I want... This daughter to look upon me as her old dad in a very real and legally binding sense. (laughs) And I feel sure that the merger, I mean the union between the princess and the brave but dangerous Sir Lancelot of Camelot. And of course, when Lancelot hears that, he's very surprised and he does not feel that it would be so lucky to marry Princess Lucky. But before Lancelot is forced to marry this woman, at that moment, Concord, Lancelot's squire, who got better, comes in carrying Herbert in his arms. And the dismayed father wants to know how his creepy son survived a fall out of the tall tower. And Herbert agrees to tell his father in song. In vain, the father tries to stop his son and the surviving wedding guest from breaking into a musical number as Lancelot makes a dramatic escape. I like how he made the dramatic escape and then came back on the rope that he was escaping from. And then asked for Almost a push. Almost back to the stair landing. <laughs> Give me a push. <laughs> we are then returned to Arthur and Bedivere as they search a nearby town to find a shrubbery to appease the knights who say knee. And the first person they ask, an old crone, is not very helpful. Or it's not very helpful. So naturally, the king and his knight begin to shout knee at the woman. And it is this scene that a mysterious stranger calls out to them, saying, Oh, what sad times are these when passing ruffians can say knee at will to old ladies. This movie teaches 
disrespect to your elders. No, it doesn't, because they're immediately corrected. Ha! There's a pestilence on this land. Nothing is sacred. Even those who arrange and design shrubberies are under considerable economic stress at this period in history. Bedivere and Arthur stop their knee assault when they hear the word shrubbery. What luck. They happen to come across a man whose trade is shrubberies. Yes, they find a shrubber. A shrubber whose name is Roger the Shrubber, who designs, arranges, and, shell, or, and sells shrubberies. Bedivere... And Arthur returned to the knights who say knee with their shrubbery in hand, but there is a problem. The knights who say knee are no longer the knights who say knee, but are now the knights who say icky, 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 pekang, zoop, boing, gurderm, zoo, uli, zoo, So naturally, Arthur and Bedivere must pass another test. They must procure another shrubbery. Then, when they have found said shrubbery, they must place it beside the first shrubbery, only slightly higher, so you get the two-level effect with a nice little path running down the middle. And then, they must cut down the largest tree in the forest with a herring. At this, Arthur refuses, saying, Cut down a tree with a herring? It can't be done! And at this, the knights who, un who until recently said knee, recoil, and it turns out the word it, I-T, it, is their weakness. And it's at this point, the cowardly Sir Robin happens to be running away down the same path as Arthur and Bedivere. And then we're taken back to the scene of the murder of the famous historian. The coroner has now arrived at the scene. And then we're treated to a lovely interlude where the narrator tells us, and so Arthur and Bedivere and Sir Robin set out on their search to find the enchanter of whom the old man had spoken. Beyond the forest, they met Lancelot and Galahad, and there was much rejoicing. In the frozen land of Nador, they were forced to eat Sir Robin's minstrels, and there was much rejoicing. A year passed. Winter changed into spring, spring changed into summer, summer changed back into winter, and winter gave spring and summer a miss and went straight into autumn. Until one day, Arthur and his knights came across the enchanter they were looking for, a man named Tim. Tim, the enchanter. I'm on uh, thetreecenter.com, shrubs and hedges. Uh, you can buy a moderately priced shrubbery for like $60. Nice. Is it a nice one, but not too expensive? It's Yeah, it's not too expensive. So you're telling me I can they get... They got all kinds of shrubberies. You're telling me I can get one shrubbery for $60, a second shrubbery for $60. That's $120. I can raise the one shrubbery up a little bit, give it a nice two-level effect and a good little path wind in between, probably for another 50 That's less than $200. Get uh -huh. a nice shrubbery uh, arrangement. And pass through the forest. Is that is that Roger the Shrubber's Shrubberies? Uh, no, it's the Tree Center Shrubberies right. Plant Supply Company. I only buy my shrubs. My, I will only buy my shrubs from Roger the Shrubber. Let's see. Let me go to the About Us tab. See if um. If somebody's named Roger from this, I'm going to right now stop the podcast and go and buy a shrubbery from them. Let's see. Uh, no names. No names given. Just a bunch of like, oh, we saved the planet and stuff like that. We don't give our plants antibiotics. It turns out that Tim knows where the Grail is, and the Enchanter points them to the nearby cave of Carabinog, where the last words of Ofen Bedwer of Regid 
are carved into the stone, and that carving tells where the grail is. Tim tells the men to follow him, but he warns, Follow only if ye be men of valor, for the entrance of this cave is guarded by a creature so foul, so cruel, that no man yet has fought it and lived. Bones of full fifty men lie strewn about its lair. So, brave knights, if you do doubt your courage or your strength, come no further, for death awaits you all with nasty, big, pointy teeth. So the party follows Tim and comes to the the mouth of the cave of of Carabinog. And at the cave, they see the fearsome creature that Tim described, but instead uh, uh, what they see is a tiny white bunny rabbit. Angry I used to have a rabbit that looked just like this. Angry at Tim for getting them all worked up, Arthur sends an unnamed knight to dispatch the vermin, only for the knight to be immediately beheaded by the rabbit. <laughs> he wasn't joking. So they decide to all charge the rabbit, and Arthur, or, or which fails, and they all run away, and Arthur calls their party's religious figure, Brother Maynard, to bring forth a holy relic to take care of the rabbit, the holy hand grenade of Antioch. Arthur and co. consult the Book of Armaments to learn how the divine grenade works. In chapter 2, verses 9 to 21 read, And Saint Italia raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this, thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayest blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs and sloths and carp and anchovies and orangutans and breakfast cereals and fruit bats. And the Lord spake, saying, First shalt thou take out the holy pen, then shalt thou count to three, no more, nor le- no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. For, shall- <laughs> For shalt thou not count, nor either count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. <laughs> Five is right out. Once the number three being the third number be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who, being naughty in my sight, shall snuff it. I... <laughs> Amen. I have never seen a more correct satirization of the King James Bible in my life. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I think I might have chuckled at this one too for this for what you the same reason you just said. Like it's if you've ever read the Old Testament in the King James, like it sounds like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you exactly read like Leviticus. <laughs> and with that, Arthur counts to three, then sends the rabbit to the hereafter. In the cave they come across the last words of Ofen Bedweer, who turned out to actually be Joseph of Arimathea. The carving read, Here may be found the last words of Joseph of Arimathea. He who is valiant and pure of spirit may find the Holy Grail in the castle of... (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the knights assume that Joseph died while carving, 
and so now they are truly lost. But then, the party's attacked by the legendary and animated blast or Black Beast of Ah, And immediately, it eats the holy man, it's Brother Maynard. Things look really bad for Arthur and his knights. How are they going to get past the Beast of Ah? But thankfully, the animator who drew the beast died of a sudden heart attack, and the party is able to make their way to the Bridge of Death that spans the Gorge of Eternal Peril. I wish they had created, like, a real monster. I think it would have been funnier. Uh, I mean, if they had time to make that stupid wooden rabbit, (laughs) I feel like they had time to make a costume for the Black Beast. Nah, I think... But then they couldn't have the animator die of a heart attack, and that's how they get past him. Yes. Well, it turns out that the old man who told Arthur about the bridge is the bridge's keeper. And the deal is this. He's going to ask them three questions. If you get them right, you can cross in safety. If you get them wrong, you are hurled into the gorge of eternal peril. Lancelot is up first. He's asked, what is your name? What is your quest? And what is your favorite color? Easy enough. He gets them all right and crosses the bridge. Bolstered by the easiness of the quiz, Robin volunteers to go next. He's asked the same first two questions as Lancelot, but the third question is, what is the capital of Assyria? Which trips him up, and the cowardly knight is hurled into the gorge of eternal peril to meet his death. Would you have gotten that one right, or would you be launched into the pit of death? I'd be dead. I don't even think (laughs) Assyria is a real place. Not anymore. I mean... Where's, when's the last time you saw Syria? I've seen Syria. Uh, in the book of Jonah. Amen. Galahad is next, and he is given the same three questions as Lancelot. However, when he's asked what his favorite color is, he says blue when he meant to say yellow, so he too is tossed into the perilous pit. And finally, it is Arthur's turn. He is asked, what is your name? And what is your quest? Which he answers correctly easily. But then the old man asks... What is the airspeed velocity of an unladed swallow? And Arthur responds, What do you mean? An African or European swallow? The old man doesn't know the answer, and so the old man is tossed into the gorge. And now you know, dear listeners, why I spent ten minutes describing the opening scene of this movie. There's a point to everything. And Bedivere, of course, is impressed and asks Arthur, How do you know so much about swallows? To which Arthur responds, Well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. (laughs) (laughs) When Bedivere and Arthur cross the bridge, they shout for Lancelot. Unfortunately, Lancelot is currently being frisked by the police in connection with the murder of the famous historian. Eventually, the two make it to Castle... Which just so happens to be the French castle that they were taunted at earlier. The French guards hurl another string of insults, saying... How you English say, I one more time mac unclog my nose in your direction, sons of window dressers. So you think you could outclever us French folk with your silly knees bent running about advancing behavior? I wave my parts at your aunties, you cheesy lot of second-hand electric donkey bottom biters. <laughs> and he quotes. 
Arthur isn't going to let these in, or isn't going to take these insults lying down, and the king rallies a huge army to take the castle by force. However, just before they're able to charge at the castle, the police show up. The historian's widow identifies Arthur and Bedefier as perpetrators of her husband's murder, and everyone who's carrying a w- weapon is arrested and taken to jail. The end. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> that is fantastic terrible ending the whole time it was just a bunch of nerds playing cosplay killing people <laughs> i'm ready to give my rating it's gonna be real low i know because you're you're an uncultured <laughs> swine here at rotten or righteous we rate everything we watch according to our patent pending seps scale which is as you know dear listeners an acronym it's a greek acronym yes it's greek seps is greek for stinky snake but here it's an acronym it stands for a whole slew of silliness. The S in steps stands for scriptural accuracy. We're going to scrap scriptural accuracy and go straight into entertainment value. There were some things I found funny, but I gave it a three. <laughs> it took me seven days to watch this movie. Oh, you're an idiot. <laughs> it truly did. I, I I just was not amused by the vast majority of it. <laughs> I'm a bad Steve one to have reviewing this. You could say that for literally any episode we've done. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> if, if, if we qualified... <laughs> Whether or not you're good at reviewing movies as a prerequisite to be on this show, you would not be sitting here right now. <laughs> but I had so much. All right. <laughs> All right, Luke. Call on me. I just did. Uh, 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 I'm going to give it a 10. Okay. So you know what this movie reminded me of? Reminded me of Napoleon Dynamite, where it was just like you could just tell some ridiculous dude sat down, wrote in a bunch of ridiculous scenes, whatever came to their mind at any given moment, and added it into the movie. <laughs> like I, I don't know. It was there were some funny parts, but it wasn't my cup of tea. Fair enough. To say it in a British kind of way. This is one of my favorite movies of all time, and it could just be nostalgia, and that's why I'm giving it such a high grade because you know I was a nerd in in high school, and this was a nerdy thing to talk about all the time in high school was was uh, the Holy Grail, and so uh, I'll give it a 22. Um, after that we do go to uh, the P, uh, parental control. Ooh, oof. Scott, give it a one. So basically, you equate this with redacted. Because I'm thinking about Again, what is JC... the most what is the most inappropriate uh, a thing you can show anyone. That's a one. <laughs> hey, I said what I said. Looks like he's just sticking with it. Doesn't have anything to say to your ridiculousness, to your justification of evil and sin. I'm not justifying evil. Give it a low grade, but I'm just saying one is the equivalent of the worst thing you can possibly see. The, yeah, I think that was this. Yeah, the most vile, this. most immoral, <laughs> disgusting acts ever put to film is a one. <laughs> I could give it a five. So, yeah, I've seen worse things. Uh, a couple things I don't like. I don't like the... 
uh, Jesus Christ comments. I, one thing I really actually didn't, I think the, the worst for me, I don't like movies that like make fun of, of like the image of God or just like the idea. And, uh, so that was definitely a big ding. Um, and then the language and then, I mean, obviously parental control. I don't know if kids would pick up on it in the castle necessarily, but, uh, any kid over probably 10 would, and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm going to give it a five. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there with the uh, image of God. Yeah, I'm going to take ten points off of it right away just for the Lord's name in vain, the few times that it's in there. There's a few other words that, you know, but I'll take five points off for that. The castle anthrax scene is a little risque, but at the same time, it's like schoolyard toilet humor. It's not anything above and beyond anything disgusting um i'll give it a 12 which i think is i thought they were going to take that scene farther i was surprised that they cut it off where they did yeah so i'll give it a 12 i think that's about right um all right should you watch is there any merit to this film one okay luke. <laughs> go ahead luke <laughs> I can't refer this to somebody say hey, you should go watch this. Okay, Luke. <laughs> so, uh, I, and yeah, I'm in the same camp. Like, I would never tell anybody to watch this. I, I don't really see. I mean, there's not even any like lessons to learn from it. Hardly. I don't. It's know. just. I'm pretty sure that I, I made a pretty convincing case. I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can find some lessons, <laughs> but logical, reasonable people, I'm not sure can. Uh, I, I'm going to give, like, it's, I, I suppose you could say it's funny in a few parts, but I would never recommend it in, to anyone. So I'll just, I'll just go with my five again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's British comedy. If you know British comedy, you like British comedy, you'll like this. Uh, if you know Monty Python and like Monty Python, you'll like this. It's right up their alley. It is their cleanest movie that I can think of that they've done. I mean, it's, it's, it's a stupid throwaway movie. Am I going to recommend it as like, oh, you should watch this because you're going to be so enriched by everything? No. But at the same time, if somebody says, hey, should I watch Monty Python or The Reliant, uh, which we reviewed last week, uh, yeah, I'm going to say Monty Python because The Reliant, although it is faith-based, is a steaming pile of garbage that I would feel worse for recommending <laughs> than this movie. Um, so with that, I you can't compare, <laughs> you can't compare two garbage movies and justify your, uh, recommendation of Monty Python off well, trash. I, I disagree that this is a garbage movie. It is a classic. It is a staple of comedy. So using the revised grading scale of Carleton <laughs> University, <laughs> anything above 30, <laughs> Uh, so at the end of the day, yes, from a Christian podcast standpoint, this is the right grade. <laughs> Money Python and the Holy Grail is given an F minus. And as always, we use Carleton University's grading scale. Hello, everyone. This is Zach. Uh, I just want to remind you, in case you listen to this episode early in the day, when it comes out on uh, April 29th, 2021. 
that tonight we are going to have our first ever live show. Uh, you can go to facebook.com slash rotten or righteous and at 6 p.m. Central Time, at 7 p.m. Uh, Eastern, we will be going live for our 52nd episode, our one-year anniversary extravaganza. So if you are available, we would love to have you uh, join us. All right, let's finish the show. So, in two weeks, to go along with this podcast, long-standing love of Mormons, I give you the Mormon magnus opus, or magna (laughs) opus that is Napoleon Dynamite, which was made as a BYU uh, film project by a bunch of Mormons. Girls only want boyfriends who have great skills. You know, like nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills. What skills do you have? hacking skills. How was school? Worst day of my life? What do you think? <laughs> Idiot. Idiot. What kind of bike do you have? It's a sledgehammer. Dang. You ever take it off any sweet jumps? jumps? <laughs> my younger brother did that same thing. What are you drawing? Surprised you the kids. What's a liger? It's my favorite animal. It's like a lion and a tiger mix. But why are you, you know so sweaty? What's the Utah? I've been practicing some dance moves. Yes. Trisha here. Trisha. Is that my driveway? <laughs> That's my ride. <laughs> I'm trying to think of how do how do we write a review for this movie? I don't think we do. I, I got an idea. All right, let's do the first ever Rotten or Righteous table read. That's all we have as far as the show is concerned. For Rotten or Righteous, I am. Joseph Zach Geiler Smith. And I am Scott Zach Joseph Judge. And I am Luke Taylor. (laughs) And she stole my thunder. I know. That's why I did it. But before we go, hey, Luke. Uh, Yes, Joseph. A proud and confident genius decides to make a bet with an idiot. The genius says, Hold up. Hold up. Hold up. Did you you say a proud, incompetent genius? Confident. Oh, okay. A proud, incompetent genius makes a bet with an idiot. And the genius says, Hey, idiot. Every question I ask you that you don't know the answer, you have to give me five bucks. And if you ask me a question and I can't answer yours, I'll give you 5000 And the idiot goes, all right, sounds good. The genius then asks, how many continents are there in the world? The idiot doesn't know and hands over $5. The idiot says, now me ask, what animal stands with two legs but sleeps with three? And the genius tries and searches very hard in his brain for the answer but gives up and hands over $5,000. And the genius goes, dang it, I lost. But by the way, what was the answer to your question? And the idiot hands over $5. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
<laughs> Good night, everybody! <laughs> <laughs> That's the best one you've told yet. Sure so, pronounced D nice. Yeah, D nice. <laughs> D nice. Now, hey, I'll tell you this though: A A Ron is in the Bible. A A Ron. That's true. And, and don't forget old Joe B. He's in there too. And Moses. Mo- yes. Good old Moses. <laughs> And then there's Matt Who, Matt Matt Hugh, Matt Hugh. No, that's pronounced M- Matitu. It's Matitu. Matitu. <laughs> and there's Melchizedek, which uh, you don't even have to do a funny one for that one. His name's already funny pronounced correctly. <laughs> Bravo to Galahad, though. He made it that long, long enough to be saved. Yes. And thank goodness for Lancelot and his willingness to make his friend angry to save him from sin and Satan. Amen. That's the way of es- the way of escape. We're then told the tale of Amen. King. Amen. Dona Eis Requiem. I haven't told you, listeners, but Zach decided to dedicate his life to be a monk. Chastity yes. for him forever. That's basically married life once you have a kid. So yeah, pretty much. Um. 